0: hospitals across the US are filling up as unchecked COVID-19 transmission continues. Meanwhile, President Trump continues to block President-elect Joe Biden's transition from accessing the federal government to prepare to take on COVID-19, even as his administration continues to ignore the imminent threat of the pandemic. The specter of Thanksgiving and Black Friday in the midst of the worst wave of this pandemic does not bode well for the near future. But on the bright side, Moderna just announced that their vaccine showed 94.5% efficacy in preliminary analysis of their clinical trials. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. And there is a light at the end of this tunnel, but it is a long, long tunnel. This week saw the worst surge in COVID-19 cases since the beginning of the pandemic. Over the past two weeks, cases are up 81% and deaths up 39%. Perhaps worst of all right now is that hospitals are swamped. To understand why, I want you to think back to the early days of the pandemic, in March and April, when all you were hearing was this.
1: You have likely heard the phrase flatten the curve used when talking about reducing the number of coronavirus cases, but what does that mean exactly and how can we do
0: it? The worry was that if we couldn't slow down transmission of COVID-19, that we would exhaust our supply of ventilators, hospital beds, and healthy frontline healthcare workers. Well, we're back to that now, only worse. Hospitals are filling up, but where the first wave of this pandemic was relegated to major cities, COVID-19 is now everywhere. One of the most important things that administrators could do then was shift the sick into other hospitals or recruit healthcare professionals from less affected communities to work in the hardest-hit hospitals. But now, because the pandemic is reaching into the most remote parts of the country, there really aren't, quote-unquote, less affected communities. Last week, we spoke with Sarah Jane Tribble and Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal about how our healthcare system has been failing rural communities because their hospitals are shutting down. And that was before the pandemic. Now, those same rural communities are becoming the epicenter of COVID-19 because of it. If hospitals are overwhelmed, it'll mean that many who are ill could simply go without the care they need, increasing their chances of death. Any chance we have of flattening the curve this time around will mean that all of us need to act like we're in the worst of the pandemic. Because we are. And I'm particularly worried about Thanksgiving and Black Friday. Don't get me wrong. Thanksgiving is my absolute favorite holiday. Turkey and football and family. And God knows we all could use a holiday that brings us together after the year we've had. But we have to be honest about the risks. After all, from what we're learning about COVID-19, it's exactly these more intimate gatherings that seems to be spreading the disease right now we've all got to be part of the solution. That means masks, physical distancing, hand hygiene, and foregoing some of the social interactions that we might have taken for granted over the summer. The Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, the leading infectious disease modeling unit at the University of Washington, projects we could be looking at a massive increase in death rates in the next few weeks. And today, I wanted to take some time in our episode to reflect on what that means. I come from a faith tradition where we're encouraged to reflect on our own mortality. I know that seems morbid or morose, but I find that it reminds me how precious life really is and inspires me to live to my fullest every day. But in our culture in the U.S., talking or thinking about death is something to be avoided, as if it's going to beckon it forward. But that often means that we're ill-prepared to process it when it inevitably happens to someone we love or care about. And given that it's one of the two experiences that every single one of us will definitely go through, the other being having born, which none of us remember, I think it's important for us to build a more honest and open relationship with mortality. This has been a particularly challenging moment in which to have to do that. Counting deaths, putting a number on them, obscures the fact that each death is a human being, a family who is aching at the loss of a loved one, a whole in a community. Right now, 246,083 Americans have died of COVID-19. I wanted to understand how losing loved ones in a pandemic changes that experience. So I interviewed two people who could teach us about it. The first is Kristen Urquiza. You might remember her moving reflection about the passing of her father during the DNC convention. Out of her grief, she started an organization called Marked by COVID to advocate for loved ones of people lost to the pandemic. I also reached out to Dr. Kathy Shear a professor at Columbia University who's an expert on grief. Their reflections after the break. Our guest today is Kristen Urquiza. She is the the co-founder of Marked by COVID. And she came to national prominence in a really heartfelt video about the loss uh, of her father, um, that was aired at the DNC and the fact that um, the, the misinformation that was out there largely peddled by the president really changed her father's perception of COVID-19 and, and ultimately potentially led him to take risks that otherwise he might not have. Kristen, thank you so much for, for taking the time today to chat with us. And of course, we are all really sorry for the loss of your father, um, but really grateful for the way that you've taken pain and turned it into to action uh, to protect others from the same kind of pain that you and your family had to experience First, can you, can you tell us about your dad?
2: Sure. Uh, thanks for having me. My dad was an awesome individual. Um, he also wasn't quite exceptional. He was a normal guy who... um you know, went to work every day, paid his taxes, uh, just wanted to be around friends and family to be able to celebrate uh, life. And the thing that makes me so sad when I think about him is that he first and foremost would have identified as a patriot. He loved this country so deeply. Um, I believe he told me on multiple occasions he was the type of guy who, bre- who bled red, white, and blue. And mm. that ultimately uh, led to him following the president's advice and passing. And that's mm. part of what makes this story uh, so tragic to me, on top of it being my dad.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, it it is and that is—that's the thing, right? 235,000 lives and counting lost, um, each of them— an average of nine people who are deeply mourning their loss, and uh, that is so profoundly painful. Um, and a lot of that driven by not just a failed response, but um, the unwillingness to even tell people uh, the truth about what this was. In in your father's case, do you know how he contracted uh, COVID and in, in in what the circumstances were?
2: Yeah, I suspect that he contracted it from a karaoke lounge. My dad was the biggest karaoke guy um, you would ever <laughs> would have met. He was not a great singer, but that did not keep him from going out there and crooning away. And after the uh, stay-at-home shelter lifted here in Arizona, um, the governor and the president, you know, quite. Uh, aggressively uh, were peddling this idea that it was safe, that we were on the other side of the pandemic. And if you didn't have an underlying health condition, it was safe to resume normal activities. And so I know that my dad went out to sing karaoke with a few of his friends in uh, the week after the stay-at-home shelter lifted. And within two weeks of that, he became ill. He woke up with Mm. COVID symptoms. And from there, you know, he ultimately passed
0: away. Did he have a favorite song?
2: Yes, A Hard Day's Night.
0: (laughs) All right, that's a a great song. Yes, Um, (laughs)
2: yeah, classic Beatles.
0: (laughs) Yeah, classic Beatles and and like fantastic karaoke uh, fodder. Um, Mm -hmm. You, um, you know, obviously you you lost your father in the middle of a pandemic. And, um, you know, I, I can imagine that the experience of grieving a loved one Is so much harder when the usual rites of passage are limited uh, in the context of a pandemic. Can you share with us how the pandemic might have shaped your ability to actually mourn your father and and, and go through the usual process of uh, a funeral and a burial?
2: Yeah. I mean, you've hit the head on the nail. My dad came from a large Mexican-American family. He was the oldest of six. I have dozens of cousins. He is still or was still close to his cousins. And so it was quite normal for any sort of wedding or funeral or other rite of passage to have hundreds of people uh, be able to be together. And that simply wasn't possible. We were able to hold a funeral, but it was limited and I limited it to just immediate family so that we could ensure that we were not creating conditions for the virus to thrive. Mm. But it feels incomplete. It absolutely feels incomplete. And, you know, from, you know, the moment that we buried him on July 8th, nobody in my family has had the type of closure that they deserve mm. in being able to say goodbye to my dad or, or be together. We haven't been able to be together and it's really jarring. It, in a way, um, kind of keeps this nightmare open um, in a freshness that you know nobody deserves.
0: Mm, I'm so sorry to hear that. Um, are, you, uh, are you planning, hopefully, when this is all over, uh, maybe to do a, a memorial that, uh, that allows you to suture those wounds a little tighter?
2: Absolutely. Um, I would love to be able to host the largest karaoke party ever um, in honor of my dad <laughs> and invite everyone to come. But it's going to be some time before, you know, we're going to be able to do that. One of the things exactly. that I have been doing in the meantime, though, is is looking at other ways to um, mourn, whether that's through my activism or working with other activists and um, cities to do temporary memorials, which we just did one in Arizona um, on Dia yeah. de los Muertos. And that was incredibly beautiful and moving, I know, for everyone who attended.
0: Yeah. Can you, can you tell me about what that is?
2: Yeah. So we partnered with some local uh, state representatives yeah. to... Um, host a temporary memorial at the Arizona State Capitol. So the Mm. people's place. Uh, We had 500 empty chairs with candles lit on them, each chair representing 100 people who have passed. And we made larger than life um, pictures of individuals who had passed from the pandemic that were provided by family members. And so in total, we had over 50 of these enlarged photographs. Um, And it was in this really huge, large, open area, so it was easy to practice social distancing. Um, And um, we obviously made it so that everyone had to wear masks as well. And I think that these type of memorials need to, I think we'll be seeing more in the coming days and weeks, but I also think they serve a critical role to help make that commitment to never forget so that we will never make this type of mistake again and could not only, can not only mourn, but also create the policy and leadership solutions to attempt to make right um, on our past COVID response. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. And one of the, the the amazing things that you've done uh, in this moment for you is channeled, like you talked about, a lot of that grief into action. And you founded Marked by COVID. You had, um, I think, what was one of the most important and most moving contributions to the, the DNC. And um, can, you, can you talk to me a little bit about uh, your decision to channel your grief that way and uh, what's gone into it?
2: The Marked by COVID was launched um, the day I buried my father and my partner and I launched it together. And a huge part of us launching that was because I never wanted anyone to have to feel how I was feeling. I always knew that losing a parent would be hard, but as we've already discussed, losing one in a pandemic and due to political negligence just took me emotionally to a level of pain and anger and frustration that I have never felt before in my life. And the decision to fall into activism, I didn't know what else to do. Um, I have over the course of my career been an environmental um, advocate and activist. And I have seen the power of people coming together to raise their voices, be able to change the course of policy and government and leadership. And it felt to me that that was what was missing in that moment. And I thought back to the AIDS crisis and the incredible activism that happened in that moment as a result of lack of government inaction the development of the AIDS quilt activists that act up and thought that's what we need. We need a movement. And I guess, I guess I'll, I'll just start doing this then.
0: Yeah. Well, we're really grateful that you did because I think you've had a profound impact on um, giving voice to folks who, who have suffered uh, unnecessarily the way that you have. And we hope that uh, we'll be able to bring an end to that. you know, one of the things that happened is that we've got a new administration and, you know, in in, um, in just over two months, they're going to be taking office. What is your message to them as they think about building out a response to this pandemic from people who've been marked by COVID?
2: My message to the Biden administration, and it brings a smile to my face to even be able to say that, is that I um, we need to prioritize the response, absolutely, and and today we saw the, you know, release of the task force and its members, and it's a breath of fresh air to see people who have expertise in this issue being uh, given the responsibility to respond to it. But the COVID issue is much larger than just the response. It's also about the recovery. It's about our resiliency to ensure this doesn't happen again, it's about recognition, so memorials, spaces, and it's also about restitution, making sure that we attempt to make whole the people who have been negatively impacted by this. And I I think the only way to make sure that we get it right or partially right is to ensure that people who have been most impacted have a seat at that table so that we can center mm their experience their lived experience and their their needs uh to be able to really truly build back better and um that i hope is something that you know when um president elect biden takes office is how the task force will evolve
0: yeah well i um i, I think that's incredibly important and in that that notion of uh making whole uh those who have lost someone of course n- nothing we can do to ever bring them back but Um, what we can do is recognize their loss and their pain and dignify that in a real way. And I really appreciate that. And of course, unfortunately, there are many people who are in a situation where they continue to believe that this pandemic isn't real, that it's a hoax, that uh, it's overblown. What do you wish people who didn't believe this was real knew about it and what's your message to them?
2: I think the only thing that I can share with people who still question this pandemic is that a death by COVID is the most undignified death. It is lonely, mm. it is painful, and it is terrifying. And that's not something you would want anybody you care about to have to experience. Mm.
0: Well, I really appreciate that message. And I'm uh, really grateful to you and, and, and your leadership uh, and your voice in this moment. And uh, again, my condolences to your family and uh, and to you and um, hope that as we continue forward, that your voice will continue to shape this moment and and what we can do about it and how we can uh, build the kind of future where something like this never happens again. Uh, that was our guest, Kristen Urquiza. She is uh, a co-founder of Marked by COVID. And thank you again for your time.
2: Thank you so much.
0: And now our second interview. Our guest is Dr. Kathy Shear. She's director of the Center for Complicated Grief at Columbia University School of Social Work. Dr. Shear, thank you so much for making the time for us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Can you tell us about the way that we usually process our grief and what it entails and what the rituals um, of that look like?
1: Yes, and no, I can tell you that. And I, and, you know, because I'm sure you know everyone grieves in their own way and processes their grief in their own way, but in general, You know, in general, we grieve because we've lost someone close and our close relationships provide us with so much. And so what grief really is, is our response to that loss. And so the loss is very multifaceted. It usually pretty much all of us experience a period of intense emotions and, and really strong preoccupying thoughts about the person who died. And a lot of the things that we do for a while are are kind of centered around honoring them or trying to keep them close or responding to the way that our social world or our whole world is turned upside down when someone close dies and, and to respond, responding to those changes. And, you know, we have to cope with stresses that are related to the loss, which, there are, again, many and many faceted, and and we also have to adapt to the loss. And in the process of doing that is related to the specifics of our relationship with the person who died, for sure, but also the way they died and the, the sort of social community and the, the social group in which we are experiencing the grief. And those latter are, of course, quite affected by, by COVID, enormously affected by covid and so the kind of, of changes that we experience with COVID, the 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 sort of sudden, unexpected kind of deaths that so many of us have experienced um, by COVID. In other words, someone gets sick who's been pretty much well, and sometimes people are also ill, but they get they get very sick very quickly, and they they tend to die quite quickly. And also the the sort of randomness of who it strikes and who it doesn't, and and how sick someone gets, and how. You know when someone else in the family might not, all of those things are going to are going to play a role in how we grieve and where we get kind of hung up and where we have to work through something. Mm. and also the the social distancing that we have to experience interfering mm-hmm. with the rituals and also with the comfort that we get from others.
0: I, I wanted to ask about about those rituals and the importance of of having other people how important are they? I mean, obviously we we do them. Every culture has its own set of rituals around death and dying. Um, how critical are they and how do they help to bind some of these wounds?
1: Yeah. So the rituals themselves, you know, people are were asking that question, how important are they even before COVID? Mm. And the answers that we've gotten so far have been maybe not not so um, absolutely ins- essential as you might think. I mean, we, they certainly are important from the standpoint that they can be very comforting, and we need comfort. We we definitely need other people. We don't grieve well alone, and we we need them for so many different things. But but definitely to hear us, to comfort us, to share in our pain, um, and sometimes also to to kind of take care of us and. And allow us that time and space to to just feel the grief you know grieve, and without that it I think it could be quite difficult
0: mm. and how has covid nineteen reshaped that? I mean obviously physical distancing and the fact that funerals are are so much harder to to plan and execute on. How has it been a burden for people, and then also how have people found their way around i mean we 're extremely resilient creatures, and um, how have people found their way around the the challenges um, that uh, social distancing might might create.
1: Well, I think you you put your finger on it. Really, is that, that people are amazingly resilient and creative. I think uh, most people are, and so people you know have found all different kinds of ways to support each other and to be supported. Most people have, but then some people really aren't able to do that for one reason or another. Either they're either their friends and family aren't able to do it and th- and those people sometimes do set their grief aside they really they really aren't up to in a way allowing themselves to fully engage in the pain i'm not even sure it would be a good idea to try to do that all by yourself and that's probably okay you know i don't think we should worry too much about that either because covid will be over and people will be around again and hopefully mm-hmm. people will be able to have memorials or do things later or they'll they be able to have their friends close by. And, you know, physical touch is one of the things that can make a big difference in our, um, it actually affects our emotions and our physiology, physical touch. So it, it is an important piece. But aside from that, you know, we, you know, if you want to talk about the more resilient side, I mean, this is one way, of course, I mean, a lot of, I think, mm. religious um, clergy have done all kinds of of innovative things to reach out to to people and to hold ceremonies in, in different kinds of ways. People use the U.S. mail, although I guess that too has been affected by our political situation, but it still is an option. People have done things like drive by the house. And I mean, I think you probably know a lot of these also. They're just, it's just amazingly creative things that people will do.
0: Mm. And how has the experience of losing someone in this kind of mass event where, you know, 235 and counting thousand people have have died right alongside the person who, you know, one might have lost, how does that shape the way that we process our pain when it's sort of this collective uh, throb?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it can it's again, it's again going to be personal because we do grieve in our own ways and we experience that that kind of community grief in different ways but i i do think one of one of the big things that this experience has done is brought everyone's attention to grief and loss in a way that we it, it's something we try not to pay attention to in our culture we don't want to hear about it we don't want to talk about it and i think in general, people are more open to talking about loss and grief. So in a way that that is a good thing, I think. And hopefully it will hopefully it will be kind of have some staying power, because that's one of the really difficult things about grief is that you don't feel it for just a few days or a week or something. You feel it for a lot longer than that. And and in our culture, there are people who just expect you to kind of buck up. Yeah,
0: right. <laughs> mm, um, I Agree. I, I do hope that um, this moment leads to a broader conversation about how we process pain and and, and loss. Because um, in our culture, I, I sort of am I'm bicultural. My um, my heritage is uh, Egyptian American, and you know, born and raised in the U.S. And there's always been that implicit contrast between uh, how grieving is processed in American culture versus in Egyptian culture. Um, And, you know, we're just so much less collective and so much more individualistic uh, in the U.S., sometimes to our own detriment. And What happens is instead of processing that pain together um, and allowing it to be something that actually brings us closer, even though we may have lost someone really critical in our lives, it is something that uh, leaves us cast out, you know, implicitly because you don't want to be a sad sack or you don't want to be the one who is a downer. Um, And so you feel like I'm just going to, you know, be over here processing my pain and the rest of you all go about your life. Um, and you know, that, 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 that is not so, um, effective. And I, I think it gets buried in, in some ways that we sometimes don't deal with very well. Um, it's a great point, actually, a really great point. What, you know, what would we do we'd be doing differently if we wanted to dignify, um, the fact that, you know, 235,000 families uh, are, are grieving now, you know, every individual's loss leaves an average of nine people, uh, very close to them what would we we'd be doing differently as a society from a political or policy perspective you know to allow people to process their pain
1: well i think i think we would start right with the process of dying itself we would we would honor it a lot more mm-hmm. i think even you know i think during what we've experienced in the in the pandemic it's very understandable that the medical system responded in the way that it did in the beginning because i mean it was almost essential that they did that but but when you sit back for a minute and ask the question you just asked i think that we would make much more effort to make sure that some family member could be with a person who's dying that that's one of the things that affects grief right is has how having to think about how mm-hmm. that person died so mm-hmm. there i mean again we could get creative with that in terms of how we could make it happen but prioritizing the way that that people die and honoring the way people die as opposed to trying to just not have it i mean we focus a lot of of attention even even now with palliative care and and helping people die in a more comfortable way that's there's a lot to be said for that but it still doesn't always focus really on the dying process itself and honoring that dying process in, in the early very early period after someone dies making sure that the the family and everyone around honors the body of the person even. I think those kinds of things go on probably in your culture and certainly in many cultures they do. And then and also honoring the way the the body is moved from one place to another. I mean, I've heard some really gruesome stories about that in, in sort of high quality hospitals. So we don't do that particularly well. And then you move from there into making sure that people do have Support I think that what we do best is early support. I think a lot of people do experience good early support in the first maybe week or two after someone dies, certainly the first few days and up to up to the time of a funeral or memorial service, or whatever it might be. But I, I think being you know, talking more about it in general, being more more um, I guess honoring suffering and honoring, emotional pain and honoring grief together that there are there are ways that we could do that better. And that would be helpful.
0: Mm. Our other guest today we just heard from is Kristen Erkiza. And she took the pain of the loss of her father and turned it into really profound advocacy uh, for policies to fight the pandemic and to support um, people who survive, loved ones who've passed. How, how common is that in a moment like this? And um, how does that uh, support or uh, or change the, the grieving process? So that's,
1: that's something that actually is very, very common. I think that, I think she's been, from what I can tell, I don't know her well, but I think she's been quite effective and some people are very effective it, it, and and when they are, I think it's very helpful. But a lot of people do that, you know, because I think in a way it's a little bit more socially acceptable than than the pain directly. And, you know, I, I do think it's a wonderful thing to do. We we actually are uh, hosting tomorrow, two parents of a young man who died 10 years ago, actually, but they were one, one of the the mother was a psycho, uh, psychotherapist and the father, a videographer, and they actually traveled to the US, they traveled around their English, they traveled around Britain and the US and to Mexico for the Day of the Dead, so that's a, that's another kind of social event that I think is extremely helpful. But they they filmed that and they've made that into a film that they are now showing mm-hmm. all over the world, and we're we're having a showing of that film, and that is again that has been so helpful to so many people because it, what they did is they they collected stories from parents mm-hmm. who lost children all over the U.S. and, and the U.K. and Mexico and. And then they put that together in a way. So that's another example. But I've also heard stories of people who try to do that, and it's not so successful. And that that's understandable, too. And that, that can really throw people. So mm. it's a little bit of a mixed bag, I would say.
0: Mm. So what I hear you saying is that, you know, for folks who feel moved to do that, um, that really is uh, a really powerful way forward. But we shouldn't expect everyone to do it, and you know the onus shouldn't be on people to sort of externalize their emotions this particular way. That you know everybody should be left to what what they're moved to do out of the memory and pain of someone they love. I I, uh, I want to ask you, you know, how um, how as as someone who studies death, how have you been spending these moments? Um, you know, in a in a time where so much of people's experience has been characterized. Uh, by this thing you think a lot about and, and that you study. Um how has it, you know, influenced your work in, in the way that you've experienced this pandemic?
1: I guess in a lot of ways. I mean one one thing is I my work has focused primarily on helping people who develop a condition that we are now calling actually it's official it's an official diagnosis at this point called prolonged grief disorder. We've we've also called it complicated grief. It's kind of the same thing. And mm. And we do think that the rates of complicated grief are going to be elevated. We haven't started to see that quite yet because that occurs. That's a really it's it's when grief is prolonged. So um, but it, but part of that work is to understand grief itself. And And most of what I've been doing has been related to helping people understand grief, because that's part of what. That's part of what the problem is is that we don't understand what it is it's we know it's an intense and very painful thing in fact I I did do another podcast where they sent me questions ahead of time and one of them was you know the 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 um holidays are coming up how can we get rid of grief over the holidays because we know mm. it goes it it is intense and it, this was this was a wonderful experience the whole podcast was a wonderful experience and the person who asked those questions was lovely totally lovely person but that's how we think right we think how can we get Mm -hmm. rid of it because it's pain and we don't want pain and you know it's 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 overly simplistic i think
0: Mm -hmm. that's that's really powerful um uh dr kathy shearer thank you so much for taking the time and and sharing your expertise with us um we really appreciate you being here it's a pleasure
1: thank you for having me
0: As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. Even as the COVID-19 pandemic surges, Donald Trump is all but checked out of his job as president. Instead, he's rage-tweeting false allegations about why the election he lost wasn't free and fair, despite the fact that his own Department of Homeland Security said that this was the most secure election in U.S. history. Worse, spineless Republicans are too afraid to speak out about how his failure to govern is hurting the country or about how his flaccid attempt to counterman reality are undermining our democracy. What does all this have to do with COVID-19? There is a surge, and the federal government is missing in action. Even more cynical is that the president is blocking his General Services Administration secretary from signing documents that would allow the president-elect to get his security briefings and his transition team to have access to the federal government, a critical step in ensuring a smooth transition, and that the next administration is ready to take this pandemic on on day one. And this week, governors and mayors across the country announced new waves of lockdowns. Here's the governor of my state, Gretchen Whitmer. Now, eight months after I first spoke to you in March, I'm asking that we join forces again. These new lockdowns are a critical step in stopping the spread of COVID-19. But this is what Donald Trump's quote-unquote coronavirus advisor, Scott Atlas, said on Twitter in response. And I quote, The only way this stops is if people rise up. You get what you accept. This about a governor who is the target of a kidnapping plot by right-wing terrorists. One imagines this man in the White House advising a president who has failed to concede that he lost a free and fair election to do absolutely nothing about the pandemic that is killing nearly a thousand people every day. Instead, tweeting this incitement to violence against a governor who dares to act. Fortunately, neither of these men will be in the White House by January 20th at noon when President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris are sworn in. But what then-President Joe Biden will be able to do to undo the terrible legacy of the Trump presidency is a matter of who wins the Senate. And that brings us to Georgia. Biden and Harris won, of course, but so many voters turned out on both sides that neither candidate in Georgia's two Senate races finished with over 50% of the vote, which is why we're headed to two Senate runoff elections in January. Control of the Senate is riding on these two races, and they're really tight. But both John Ossoff and Reverend Raphael Warnock have a shot to win and flip the Senate. That's why Vote Save America is back with Adopt a State, Georgia edition. Sign up to Adopt Georgia at votesaveamerica.com Georgia and keep an eye on your email for the best ways to help organizers on the ground. They've already flipped this state once for Biden and Harris. Let's make sure they finish up and flip it for Ossoff and Warnock. Also, we've got some new america dissected merch in the Crooked store in time for the holidays. Head over to crooked.com store and shop now. Oh, and don't forget to put any questions you have for me and Dr. Saira Meded. Into an email to americadissected at crooked.com. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra, Byra Smith, and Alison Falzetta. The theme song is by Takeo Suzawa and Alex Viviera. Our executive producers are Sarah Geismer and me, Dr. Abdul El your host. Thanks for listening.